Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hello and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Friday, January 19th, 2024. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice, and they're available on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the two words that say start here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And that chapter of the book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using for over 19 years now to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again, absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you choose to do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. We help people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively apply these tools in their lives, and secondarily because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. If you have any of those to share with us, we would appreciate you doing so by giving us a call at 563-999-3581. Once you call that number, if you press 1 on your phone, it will put the little icon of a hand by your phone number. I'll turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code. Alternatively, you can send us an email 
You can email Jeannie at J-E-A-N-I-E at whyagain.org. That's W-H-Y-A-G-A-I-N.org. Or you can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org. And if we get a comment, a question, an answer, a testimonial from you, we will address it on the Internet show. And then as time allows, send you a notification about what day and time that occurred so you can listen to the archives for your feedback. We are grateful whenever anybody does that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention we have with this work is to be of service, and that's just a whole lot easier to do when we know how things are landing for you. So, that's our intro. We have plenty of time for comments and questions, answers or testimonials. A couple things going on. We had our support group last night. We listened to the second interview with Laura McGowan on the um, We Can Do Hard Things podcast where she reviews the nine statements that she based her second book on. And these nine statements were born basically from a list of things that she needed to hear when she was recovering. Those nine statements are, it's not your fault. Number two, it is your responsibility. Number three, it's unfair that this is your thing. Your thing is whatever stuck point you have, whatever addiction, whatever relationship problem you have, whatever it is that keeps tripping you up and preventing you from living a full, vibrant, joyful, productive life. That's what she means by your thing. It's unfair that this thing is disrupting you, that you have difficulty with this pattern or this addiction. Statement number four is, this is your thing. Statement number five is, this will never stop being your thing until you face it. Number six is, you cannot do it alone. Number seven is, only you can do it. Number eight is, you are loved. And number nine is, we will never stop reminding you of these things. So we listened to the interview where she was explaining a little bit more in detail of each of those. Hard to do within an hour, but they did get to all nine of them. And her book, Push Off From Here, is um, a deeper dive into each of those. So... I mentioned as I turned off the audio last night after the podcast was played that I had at least 15, if not 20 different times 
in that podcast where I wanted to turn off the audio and say, this is exactly what Way of Mastery is calling us to. This is right there in Lesson 3 of Way of Mastery or Lesson 7 in Way of Mastery. So, again, the similarities are powerful. I get tremendous benefit when I look for the similarities across the, the different teachings And one of the things that happened is that in that discussion with Laura McGowan and Abby and Glennon and her sister, I think it was Laura McGowan that mentioned body work, somatic work, awareness of body energies, etc., And one of our group attendees said, so what is that in reference to? And I talked about how the word soma, S-O-M-A, means body. And somatic therapies are therapies of body and body awareness. And it came up that some of the people on the call were not aware that I interviewed Dr. Pat Ogden, who is one of the pioneers in um, somatic therapy and sensory motor psychotherapy institute is um, uh, an institute that she created and, and is one of the founders of. And so if anyone's interested in learning more about that, my interview with Dr. Pat Ogden Uh, aired, I think it was April of 2021. I'm sorry, it's March of um, 2021. Also, in that process of looking it up, I found that the Podbean app is a much easier app for me to use to find my On Your Mind podcast episodes And it gives me more information. Like this one gives me the date it was published, March 16th, 2021. Right there when it lists the podcast, and so I don't have to go searching for the publication date. So I just thought I'd mention that if anybody's interested, if you want to learn more about sensory motor psychotherapy or somatic therapy work, Uh, I had the privilege of interviewing one of the pioneers in that field, Dr. Pat Ogden, and she is out in the Colorado area. And that podcast is available through the On Your Mind podcast, again, published March 16th, 2021. And it's just... Another resource we like to offer, there's 152, 153 have been done, but 152 interviews have been published. That one with Dr. Pat Ogden is probably one of my better ones, if I rank them from the, the, uh, from the perspective of was I having a good day as an interviewer with the interviewee um, having a, a, a good, easy time representing their work, I'd say that was one of the better interviews out of the 152 that have been done. 
So that's our my offering for today. Um, hopefully, hopefully it will be helpful to people as a resource. And if nobody else has a hand up, please remember if I start reading or talking about something, we welcome people to raise a hand or send a text or type in the chat room. Again, the call-in number is 563-999-3581. You call that number and press 1. Even if I'm in the middle of something, it's appreciated. Your input helps make these shows higher quality. I started Lesson 7 yesterday in the Way of Mastery, and the title of it is Birthing the Mind of Christ as a Lesson. And where I ended last was to say, do not strive to heal this world. This is one of my favorite paragraphs in the entire book. Please do not strive to heal this world. Please do not do anything to make a show of how much you love another person. Give up the concept of being a busy bee. Simply be the presence of capital L love. And you choose to do that because you finally realize there is absolutely no value in trying to be anything else. And that in truth, you have never succeeded at being anything but the presence of capital L love. So why is this one of my favorite paragraphs? Because it goes right in line with the teachings from the Kabor's manuscript and from Michael Rice and from the Course in Miracles, that love is not a verb. It's not something we do to someone or something. It is the essence of creation. It is our energy. It is the stuff that gives us our existence. It's what we're made of. So if we can choose to use our conscious awareness to tap into that truth and stay consciously focused on that truth before we think, speak, or act, everything's going to go better because we will then be acting from the awareness of our true nature as love. We are not loving someone, even though this book has some regulatory speech where it says things like, you you are loved, loving, and lovable forever. So that's not exactly regulatory speech, but it conveys this warm, firm, true, gentle, vibrant experience of your true nature. And yet at other times they're very clear about how you are the presence of love. And when you wake up to the fact that every attempt you've ever made to try and think of yourself or beat yourself up for being something less than that or trying to be separate from your creator has never worked. You've never left home. You've never been able to change one iota about your true nature. You remain as you were created to be. When you wake up to that, your experience of yourself and your life starts to change dramatically. So the text goes on and says, Each sane 
moment that you have experienced, each time you've experienced a moment of unlimitedness or of genuine intimacy, every time you've had an experience of grace-filled joy, in whatever form it seems to appear, this has only happened because you have allowed your mind to slip into the sea of peace. And there you have merely abided. You're, you're abiding empty, wanting nothing. You've canceled all your goals. You're empty of trying to be right. You just empty your head. You're in that empty-headed not-knowingness. You're not seeking anything. You're merely being the presence of what you are. And when that quality becomes cultivated so that it permeates your consciousness with each breath and with each moment, that's when you will know that Christ has indeed arisen this day. And you will celebrate the holiday of Easter with each breath. Easter, the resurrection, the rebirth, right? the coming back from the dead. What's the dead? My, my being in the dream that I'm less than love. My, my being in the dream that I'm separated from my creator. So every moment that you've ever had where you felt genuine intimacy, unlimitedness, grace-filled joy. Whatever's been going on is only because you've allowed yourself to slip into the sea of peace and you just allow yourself to be what you truly are. You abide there in the empty-headed not-knowingness. You're not in pursuit of anything. You don't desire anything. You're just breathing in the experience of being awake and aware in consciousness as your true nature. And when that quality becomes cultivated within you, you practice it, you, you spend your conscious awareness in vigilant about the tightness and the tension and the judgment, and as soon as you're aware that you have that going, you release it you cancel it, you soften and breathe, that's when, with each breath and each moment, you'll have an awareness that Christ has arisen within you, that you have become a conduit for the Christ mind. The next section is titled, The Shadow of Fear. So the question is, if you are true love, expressing in form, if you've never been separated from your creator, if the truth that is true always has never changed, then the question is asked at the beginning of this next section, what could ever possibly arise to obstruct from your view, the truth that is true always. What could block you from seeing that you are the energy of love expressing in form? 
kind of a good question, right? If this truth is always true, it's your whole nature, it permeates everything, then how come you aren't aware of it moment to moment? The text reads, There is an ancient forest on your planet, a forest so high in a rugged mountain valley and so rugged that no one has ever been there. Unknown to the minds of humanity, life goes on in the forest. Deep within the heart of this forest, this morning, a little tiny blade of grass seemed to be tossed by an unseen wind. As it was tossed for just a fragment of a moment, so subtle and soft was this wind that as the sunlight played against this blade of grass, it cast the smallest of conceivable shadows on a stone that's just a little bit away from the blade of grass. No one noticed. The shadow had no effect. The rock did not even notice. No one on the planet noticed. No one in any of the heavens noticed except me. I needed something to build a story around. That tiny shadow, cast by a little blade of grass momentarily wiggling in a wind in some remote forest, that shadow has virtually no effect on the turning of the planets, the creation of new suns, and certainly not one trace of effect on how deeply the Creator loves you. That little shadow is what you have given power to. That little shadow seems to be able to obstruct the capital T truth within you from being lived. For the moment, whenever you give that little shadow power, in that very moment, fear is born. Fear is always and only a contraction away from capital L love. And fear makes you smaller than the blade of grass that momentarily seems to cast a shadow and therefore obstructs your recognition of the warmth of the sun that bathes you always, always. So please know that whenever you resist healing, whenever you struggle to learn to, quote, speak your truth, close quotes, you may rest assured that something has occurred just prior to that. What is it? It is your decision to believe that that little shadow is all-powerful. It's your decision to believe that if you heal, if you grow, if you change, if you let Christ live in you, then that little blade of grass and the little tiny shadow it creates for a very temporary moment, it will come and punish you and crush you. Now, if you can truly take this story into your being and recognize the utter laughability of such a belief, you will never fear fear again. You'll never again allow fear to master you and direct the course of your life. Now, 
please hear this accurately. They're not saying that as soon as you tell yourself this story, you'll never have fear again. They're not saying it's the end of all fear. They're saying you won't fear the fear. You won't let the fear drive your choices and your behaviors. You won't let the fear completely obstruct your view of your true nature. You won't let fear drive the bus. You'll feel it, you'll acknowledge it, you'll breathe and soften, you'll feel the tension of the energy in the body and the body's energy system, and then you'll go do the next right thing anyway. The text goes on and says, you will learn what it means to trust what is birthed in the heart. Not trying to figure it out, not stuck in the mind spinning, but you will learn what it means to trust what is birthed in the heart, in the awakened heart. And you will arise and you will go forth without fear, with no story at all. You will accomplish whatever creativity wishes to express through you. And the whole while, you will know that of yourself you do nothing. But the Creator, through you, can do anything and everything. Therefore, let's ask ourselves, what forms of the shadow of that little blade of grass are we allowing to run and own and possess our souls? There are many forms of that shadow, are there not? There are peers and parents and siblings to please. There are governments to bow down before. There are mates and children that must come first. There are bills to pay. There are desires to check and keep in order. There are activities and statements and behaviors that are done by others that require at least seven or eight hours a day for you to analyze and judge and they might think, well, geez, this world is exhausting, but somebody's got to do it. And you thought it was love that makes the world go round? Trust me, love does not spin and go nowhere. Love, the energy of creation, created you. Love burst within you as an individual at least within this dance of time and space, it births within you the power to choose, the power to feel, the power to channel light and love, the power to know that something exists within and as you. That is what love has done. Has fear ever created anything remotely like that? So the question is, what do you want? Do you want creation or mimicry? Do you want peace or the ability to simply drug yourself with triviality? Imagine, imagine that all power under heaven and earth are flowing through you with every breath so that your consciousness has the ability to witness 
not what you do as the maker or doer, but that which the divine is doing through you in each moment. And you get to marvel at the creativity of love. The very same love that moves the sun and the moon and the stars. Now, sitting back and marveling at that is a delightful pastime. By the way, you have called the body your body, as if you have some right to possess it. Give the body to the creator. The creator knows how to use it. You do not. When your life is given to being only the presence of love, for no other reason than you want it to be, then you will know because you will be the truth, capital T Truth, that sets all things free. Here's a suggested statement. The whole of creation is waiting to move through me, and I want to be aware of it. I want my experience, my lived consciousness, to be blissfully absorbed in observing the flow of love through me. And then if there are any cobwebs in the way of that, you will get to sweep them out of the way. When you are in that quality of being, heaven and earth will move to become your servant, and not until then. After all, if you send a conflicted message, nobody shows up for the dance. So now you know what the shadow is. Perhaps you enjoy dancing with it, and yet there's a greater question. Are you going to let the shadow lead, or are you going to lead? What's the shadow? In this case, it's fear. What is fear? Fear is contraction away from love. What is fear? Fear is a temporary forgetting or focusing on something other than love. Course in Miracles says many times there is only love or fear. And the fact of the matter is fear doesn't exist, only love exists. So how can you say that? Well, because fear isn't, it's like um, this scientist that does these little science bits and puts them on on, on YouTube and Facebook. And the question that came across, is there such a thing as cold? And the answer is no. There is no such thing as cold. There is only the absence of heat. Just like the thought, is there such a thing as darkness? No, darkness is not a real thing. It's simply the absence of light. Or the places where the light can't reach. But you don't turn on dark. You turn on a light. Or you turn off a light. Light is something that you can create and bring into a situation. Into a room. A flashlight, a light bulb, a flame 
spotlight. There's this great image about, you know, how do you get the darkness out of a room? You don't go in there with a pickaxe and shovels and, and brooms and vacuums and vacuum up the darkness because there's nothing there. It's not stuff. It's not a thing. It's simply the absence of light. That's the essence of these teachings related to fear. Fear is not a real thing. Fear is a contraction away from what is real. Fear is a creation of ours. It's the, um, the alarm system within our mind-body energy system telling us that we're turning away from what needs to be seen. Our thoughts are off the mark. We're contracting from love. And that's the signal. The fear is the signal that, oh, I'm focusing on the wrong thing. So my fear at a mental psychological level is every bit as useful as an alarm just like my fear at a physiological level is useful as a as a warning about danger. So, you know, if I'm in a situation and um, the hair goes up on the back of my neck, I can say, oh, guess what? There must be something in my physical environment that is, dangerous that I'm not aware of right now. I should turn my focus on that. I should pay more attention to that. I should wake up, turn the light on. Well, the same thing in the realm of the mental, emotional. I am best moving my life forward when I use fear as an alarm to tell me that my thoughts are off the mark. That in one way or another, I am withdrawing from awareness or from the truth of life. It's not that there is a danger except the danger that can come if I walk around in the darkness, I might bump into something. If I walk around in my mind letting fear drive my thoughts and ruminations, I create more and more problems. If I choose to reach over and turn on the light or choose for love or choose to teach only love or choose to focus on my true nature as love and then extend that in a situation, I turn the light on, I eliminate the danger. So the text goes on in Lesson 7. The next segment is titled birthing the mind of Christ. And the text reads, when your life becomes liberated in that, I'm not speaking of perfection as you would know it, but when your life becomes that motivation to be aligned with love, to choose only love, etc., that attitude and that declaration, that devotion, then Perfection will be witnessed through you. 
For the true meaning of perfection is miracle-mindedness where that which saves time occurs. When your life becomes that, and when you no longer have any conflicted commitment in your beingness, you will know exactly the result of the life that there was the, that was there for me, because you will be that same expression of love. Yes, I know you're worrying. Now, does that mean that when I get really close, I'm going to have to go through my final initiation of crucifixion? And if I have to do it, will you promise that they will at least sterilize the nails? Could I choose the day or the hour? I don't want to get up too early, you know. All tongue-in-cheek. Because as the text says, you already know what crucifixion is all about. You've done it to yourself a million times in ways that are far worse than a mere nail driven through the hand that creates a little twinge of pain. Hell is nothing more than the state of being rutted or stuck in the process of crucifying one's self, capital S, self. And that is just the attempt to murder or destroy what the Creator has created out of love. And that's futile. You can't destroy anything that truly is. That's right there in the beginning of the Course in Miracles where it says, you know, nothing unreal exists and nothing real can be attacked or or damaged or hurt in any way. So you can't destroy what the Creator has created. You can only choose a dream of being powerful enough to destroy it. You can only choose to withdraw from it and initiate your own pain and fear and sadness. So the text goes on and and tells us to stop wasting your energy trying to love God That will not do it for you. So stop wasting so much energy trying to learn how to love one another. That will not do it for you. And for heaven's sake, please refrain from all attempts to get anyone to believe that you love them. Put the whole of your attention on giving up the patterns of belief from which you have attempted to crucify the capital S self that the Creator made and placed within you, that self as the very awareness of your existence. Learn that that self is love, and it is loved beyond all created things. Learn to nurture that self, capital S self. Learn to cultivate within that self only that which speaks of joy and truth so that your words and your actions and your very presence always uplift another. So that when another walks into a room in which you are sitting or standing or moving, they will feel like a breath of fresh air just hit them, even if you've not lifted a finger. As long as there is a any trace of energy within you in which you are striving to get from any perceived thing or object around you, what you think you are lacking inside of yourself, as long as any of that energy exists, you cannot know 
your true self. You cannot know the energy of love. You cannot experience freedom simply because happiness is an inside job. And then what happens? You finally get it right. You decide, all right, what's that little shadow been doing? Well, let's take care of that one and that one and that one and that one. How many blades of grass, how many shadows have there been within this seeming life experience overlaid upon the self? Does it matter? It doesn't matter. You're busy birthing Christ. What happens when this really occurs? Well, first, and listen well, nothing will be unacceptable to you. This is a big, rough pill for a Western mind to swallow. This is in italics. It says, first, dash, and listen well, dash, in italics, nothing will be unacceptable to you. Please just listen to your Western mind. Watch it chomping at the bit to say, this is ridiculous. What do you mean? We had somebody just on Tuesday night in one of the groups hitting a brick wall with this very thought. What do you mean nothing will be unacceptable to me? What about those horrible abuses that happened to me when I was a child? What about the death of a friend who got hit by a drunk driver when I was a teenager? What about a child with cancer? What about the people are getting bombed out of their houses in this country and that country right now today. Just what we're called to in this work is just watch the mind, the monkey mind chattering, trying to prove that it's right. And notice the tension in your body whenever it's in judgment against this this little writing that we're reading or any other philosophy that clashes with a philosophy that you hold on to. The process that we're invited into is just watch. Stay focused on your true nature as love. Stay focused on the miracle of life expressing through you. Choose to share only your loving thoughts choose to be only love in every moment choose to remove every thought that hides from you the experience the direct conscious awareness of your true nature as love and then what's going to happen is nothing will be unacceptable to you the text goes on and says and yet the mind still resists quote Well, but does that mean that if somebody's not a vegetarian that they're still loved? Does that mean if somebody votes for someone I'm sure is the wrong person that they're not insane and I can still love them? Does that mean that someone who seeks power and therefore creates a war and kills 5,000 women and children that I can still look upon them and not have my love be disturbed? Does it mean that whatever arises within this temporary world is really, truly, literally not a problem for me any longer, that nothing 
is unacceptable? Yes. Full stop. Yes. And the next statement seems to clash with the Western mind. It says, it does not mean that you condone it. It means it's no longer unacceptable. For what you cannot accept, you will judge. And every judgment is the attempt to murder what you have decided has no right to be. So, having something be acceptable to me simply because it's occurred is not the same thing as me saying, oh, that's good, I, I condone this, I think more people should get blown up, etc. That's not what it means. This is simply about watching the internal process of contraction away from the flow of life, the process of judgment and its impact on my ability to perceive, the process of perception itself, as this highly active force within me that creates my experience of life. Because, as this book points out, as the text goes on, judgment is the opposite of forgiveness. Forgiveness is dismantling judgments and perception. Judgment is the opposite of forgiveness. Judgment lives on the side of the fence with fear. Forgiveness, dismantling judgment, lives on the side of the fence with love. And only love can heal this world. Imagine then living in a state of being in which literally nothing was unacceptable to you because you knew that the source of your true being was far beyond the limitations of anything created in space and time that not even death, which has been created out of the contraction known as fear, not even death is unacceptable. I say unto you, if you will choose to trust me, I will show you the way to peace. I will wait for your reply, as I can do nothing to take from you the freedom required to become wholly totally committed to allowing Christ to be birthed where once a useless illusion reigned. I will show you how to become the being out of which all creation is arising so that you will know the truth that sets you free. Now, this will rise up within you the most fundamental of fears possible. What is that? It is the last to be overcome, the fear of death. For when you are confronted by the capital T, Truth, you know that everything you have sought to create as a substitute for the truth must die. That is why it is said, quote, the last to be overcome shall be death, close quotes fear of death. Death is allowed that Christ might live. Understand well, there is no one 
And there shall not at any time be anyone who reads these words to whom I have not given this promise unto. I will show you the way to the truth that is true always and sets you free. And yet only you can make the decision to bring the whole of your being to that journey. And all it requires is what you call a smidgen of willingness. A smidgen of willingness is all it takes. I know the way home because I've completed the journey, and I will show you the way. Now this next sentence I have highlighted and underlined in big orange highlighter. With every word I utter, my one intent is to reveal to you the place within you that is the presence of love that you seek. With every word in this book, with every voice that's slipping into your mind between thoughts, the one intent is to reveal to you the place within you that is the presence of love, capital L, love, that you seek. The text goes on. What if you chose to actually commit yourself to considering what I am sharing? Now, that's not the end of the sentence. The sentence goes on. But just sit with that question. What if you chose to actually commit yourself to considering what is being shared in these teachings? What if you chose to return to the innocence of a child as you contemplated what these teachings could mean in your life? Rest assured, when the journey to the kingdom is completed, the journey within it begins anew. The bliss, the wisdom, the creativity, the laughter, the friendships, the family, the joy, the serenity, and the peace, these that have been for the most part seen as impossible and just a dream, they will become your most ordinary state of being. And yet none of it can occur through any power that can move through me, Yeshua, or your God. or It cannot come from outside of you. I can guide you. I can show you the way. And I can walk beside you on the way you've chosen. At times I can give you my strength until yours is as certain as mine and I can carry you. But ultimately, you must demand that I put you down so that your feet touch the soil of the kingdom of heaven and you walk under your own strength, under your own certainty beside me. You will find in that day and that hour, as often as I ask, you will find in that day and hour that as often as you ask it of me, I will ask of you, quote, how do you think we could do this? What would you like to create with me? Close quotes. And then, indeed, we are brother and brother, 
sister and brother, friends, dancing and playing in the kingdom prepared for us by creation. One little shadow cast by a tiny blade of grass is all that seems to prevent you from coming completely to where I am. If you tarry yet a little longer, it is all right. You cannot prevent me from knowing the truth about you and loving you. When you are in, capital L, love, when you are so immersed in simply being love, is it not true that you have no sense of time at all? There is no sense of any effect disturbing your peace. You're just, quote, swaying to the music, close quotes. You're loving and your wholeness grows even more holy. Therefore, love one another as I have loved you. For the Creator has first loved me that I might show you the truth of what love is and the reality of your being. I will not cease in doing this regardless of how long you choose to tarry. For love is indeed patient and kind. Love is not deluded. Love does not allow delusion. Love embraces all things, trusts all things, and allows all things. Love knows perfectly well where it is going and never ceases in that journey until every blade of grass is released from casting shadows and the whole of creation is returned to the heart of the Creator. Learn to love your capital S self. And in so doing, learn to cry out to this world, I and my Creator are one. That is the soil from which I move and live and have my being. So be it. Close quotes. And remember that the Creator looked upon His holy creation and said, Behold, it is very good. And that goodness has a name. It is your name. And behold, it is very good. That light deserves to shine. The doorway stands before you. Will you open it through the power of your own choice? For what you experience will reveal to you what choice you have made this day. Beloved and holy friends, may peace be with you always. And may the truth that is true always shine within your hearts and minds throughout all the ages. Remember, there is a perfectly good reason why I keep saying time and again, quote, I am always with you, close quotes. I mean, so oddly enough, we went all the way through Lesson 7 today. Thank you all for being here. We have a few minutes left for comments or questions. If anybody wants to raise a hand. And um, I 
I would just like to reiterate that as far as I know, Podbean is an absolutely free app you can download to your device, and it will let you have, has let me have a better, easier access to any of the podcasts that I follow. It lists them well. It gives me the dates and when they were published. It's helped me with my own Journey's Dream podcast, the On Your Mind podcast. So you might want to check that out. And I can just repeat the reminder that the interview I did with Dr. Pat Ogden is a very good, at least, overview or introduction to sensory motor psychotherapy or the somatic therapy approach. And again, that was, um, I think, when I... I think it was uh, April or March of 2021 that that was published. So if you're looking for it, just keep scrolling up and you can see the dates of publication change in the Podbean app. And when you get into 2021, you can slow down and look for the Pat Ogden interview titled How Your Body Helps with Trauma Resolution with Dr. Pat Ogden, March 16th, 2021. That's my offering for today. Thanks, everybody, for being here. I'll remind us all that we come from love. We're made of this stuff we call love. We actually are love. And everything else is false. Welcome, Jeannie Rice. Turning on your microphone. Thank you, Dr. Tim. I appreciate it. And I hope you have a good, safe weekend. Thank you. Same to you. Hope it warms up down where you are. (laughs) Yeah, we got two more inches of snow last night. (laughs) Fun playtime, huh? Oh, yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, have a great weekend and a good show. Bye-bye. Thank you, you too. Bye. Welcome, everybody, to Mind Shifters Radio. And today is Friday, January 19th, 2024. And our call-in number here on Blog Talk is 563-999-3581. And we'll just say that I am recording on Podbean at the same time as we are recording on uh, Mind Shifters on Blog Talk. So it's, I've listened to it and it is a little bit... Um, metallic sounding but it's picking it up pretty good and there's also on the website I have created a separate page that if you go to the website whyagain.org and over under Kaboris you can uh, there is I'm trying to do it at the same time I'm talking my apologies so whyagain.org and then there's a menu over in the far right that says Kaboris and underneath it it'll say enlightenment that's just about the book, but then there's one that says Enlightenment Study. And if you go to that page, it tells you about the offering that we're making of buying the book for $26 as a donation, and we will pay the shipping and handling. And then underneath it is um, 
all of the archives. I'm uploading the second hour to our YouTube channel, putting the links there on this in, um, Enlightenment study page and the dates, and then also the link if you want to listen to it on Podbean. So you can uh, make both of those available to yourself and uh, let us know what you think. And Michael will be with us here in just a second. And uh, he will continue. Today is day five of the Enlightenment series that we're working on. And the Enlightenment is the book, what has been published so far out of the Kaboris manuscript. And so we'll get more into the history and, and some of the information there. When Michael gets on, I'm actually going to read a comment that was in the chat room yesterday, and we didn't have time to get to it. So I will read it after he gets on here. And Michael, if you're on, you're not showing up on the switchboard yet. Well, I'm going to step away for just one second and see if he's having trouble getting logged in. Just one moment. Welcome, Michael. And um, we did have a comment yesterday in the chat room. Um, so if we could read that and address it. And Great. we already Let's have a Okay. They had said, you inspire me, inspired me to explore the LAMSA months ago. I actually started with Erico. Is there in existence the LAMSA translations that were not just the 1,500 changes, but the full 10,000 differences? No, unfortunately there are not. And what's being referred to is that George Lamsa did his translation, the Aramaic. George Lamsa was a man who was born in the Middle East. His native language was Aramaic, so he didn't have to do all the unlearning and the relearning from the Greek. And so this is back in 40s, 50s. And the, uh, the good, quote-unquote, Christians were threatening to kill him because he did not uh, conform with the Greek translation that was called the King James Version. And so he said that the changes should have numbered somewhere between 10 and 12,000 being published today in, as the Greek translations. And he only made about 1,600 out of those 10 to 1,000. 12,000 changes that he thought he could survive with the threats to his life that were coming. So, so George Lamsa's translation is limited. However, he and Rocco Erico worked together for years, and uh, if you want a more uh, full understanding, uh, go to anything that they've published. There's gospel light, more light on the gospel, Old Testament light, idioms of the Bible's explained, Bible explained, the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic. There's a whole series of things that both Rocco, Erico, and Rocco's website is Nura, which means light, N-O-O-H-R-A.com. Or it might be .org, uh, one or the other. And you can find uh, Lamsa's work and Lamsa's translations and such there. 
And there are lots of uh, videos on YouTube as well. They're really very enjoyable and very insightful. So that would be my offering in that direction. And then I have a question that came in via text. And uh, the text reads, quick question. Can you give me an example of sin versus evil? If sin means you miss the mark, and evil means you miss the whole board target altogether, and an example of how one would know they've missed the mark and how they've missed the target altogether, and what would happen to one if they sinned, quote-unquote. So let's take the last piece first. So it's, I think in the Western world it's, understood as some kind of a theological threat. If you do something this evil, bad, this nasty thing that the Greeks put forward as sin, if you do that, then God's going to get you. He'll kill you, <laughs> literally. And then you get to burn somewhere for eternity. Uh, but in Aramaic, when they and they did say the wages of sin is death. If you understand that the word sin means off the mark, it's an, actually an archery term. Both words, sin and evil, are archery terms. If you fired at the bullseye and you missed the bullseye, the scorekeeper would yell sin. If you missed the target altogether, the scorekeeper would yell evil. So you're off the target altogether. So an example of that would be, let's, let's speak it in something that's a little more immediate than, than normal. Let's speak it in terms of health. There are certain energetic influences that your structure is made for. Let's say, let's, let's take it down to the, the uh, area of nutrition. For instance, every cell in your structure has as its fuel source glucose, sugar. In fact, uh, many physicians, they're discovering and calling Alzheimer's type 3 diabetes. And they're calling it type 3 diabetes because there is no insulin in the brain. And insulin is required to get sugar into the cell. And so people who have this type 3 diabetes tend to become progressively poor and poor in mental faculties because the sugar can't get into the cell. However, there is a solution to that. And that is that there's a an oil called MCT oil power. Actually, the oil is not very tasty, but the oil power is really quite good. And MCT oil powder is a short-chain fatty acid that the cells can use without insulin. And we saw a turnaround, for instance, with Jeannie's dad who had Alzheimer's. And he was getting to the point where, you know, our favorite thing to do together was play dominoes. And he was getting to the point where we had to give him instructions for every step of the way. His Alzheimer's was getting pretty serious. And I was doing research and came across the MCT oil powder. And we started to give him that. And within less than two weeks, he was beating us again at dominoes. <laughs> so the sugar or insulin is not need to get the sugar into the brain. So that that so the the natural thing would be you put food in your body, the body converts that food to a usable energy source called sugar. So that would be on target. Now what the food industry has done recognizing that and that we have a an attraction to sweet things because there's an unconscious knowing that that sugar is a source of energy. 
and and that's what causes the whole structure to function. So when something tastes sweet, what the structure interprets that as is, ah, oh, there's nutrition here. You know, if you're familiar with uh, a vegetable garden, there's a thing called a bricks meter. And a bricks meter tells you how much sugar there is in, let's say, a, a fruit or vegetable. And if you pick something at the peak of ripeness, the BRICS number will be high. It will be loaded with sugar. And that's when it's ripe and ready to eat, take in. Your body digests all of those nutrients and coenzymes and such that come with the food and then give your cells this, the glucose that they need. However, what they did is they took all of the nutrients away and refined the sugar down to where it's just this pure poison. Literally, sugar is a poison if you put it in the body. It destroys the body. So sugar, isolated from nutrients in food, would be, in the Aramaic sense, in the context we're speaking, would be sin. And when they said the wages of sin and death, if you do sugar over a period of time, you'll notice that the person who does a lot of sugar, ends up with diabetes, ends up with foot sores, ends up, uh, my last memory of my grandmother was, uh, she was a, a sugar addict, and uh, they took off her toes on one foot, then the other, then they cut her, half of her foot off, then at the ankles, and by the time she finally passed, she was, had both legs cut off up to the knees because of her taking that poison in. Long-term result, wages in his death. So that would be sin in the Aramaic sense, just meaning it's an energy that's off target. Doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it. It just isn't on target for the structure it's going into. Now, in that, again, let's take that in the next step now. Let's go to evil. What would being off target altogether be? So I sit down and I lace my, uh, my soup with arsenic miss the target altogether, and within minutes I'm dead. That would be what that would look like. So I hope that uh, fits and makes sense for your, your question, and I'm glad you're asking it. I'm glad you're hanging out with us on the show. And we'll make sure I know you're off in the Bahamas. I did some worksheets yesterday on my envy at you being in the Bahamas. Well, we're here in freezing, you know, it's down to one degree, eight inches of snow and all that stuff. But, hey, I won't complain about it much. <laughs> so I hope that fits and makes sense for your question. And, Miss Jeannie, you've got somebody with a hand up. I do, but I also there was a, a addition to that first question. Um, oh, okay. They said... It's been amazing that so much has inspired so many more questions. This is another. Have you ever heard of this question? I was reading after Erico and began to see that I have done like those in the Near East do. And I like that culture, but I'm white. Um, you know how the mind thinks. Telling me that reincarnation is real, I'm, I know it's not. But is it out of left field to say it's possible that there is a stored memory of sorts from ancient parents that were from that area or culture? There must be a reason why I pay attention to these things. I didn't ask for it. Looking on the inside really is fun, but always comes with more questions. Yes, so, uh, I mean, I'm with you. 
Oh, go ahead. Excuse me. I thought you were finished. Speaking. I was just going to say the ancestral memories, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that's been well documented in science. There's no question. You go back to the ancient Aramaic and what did it say? The sins of the fathers will be passed, yea, on two, three, and four generations. They're saying that if a uh, an energetic influence is put into the the sperm or the egg, the development of the child is going to carry whatever the energies that are off the mark of the parents. It's, it's pretty pretty straightforward for sure. And you know what what we can be sure of. I don't think anybody really understands how the energy system works at its very deepest levels. I know that over the years, and what I usually say to somebody, over the years of working with people, I've had people who have things come up that they accept or believe are past life memories. And there are other ways, I think, to explain memories like that, as in genetic memories, or it might just be the creative mind making something up in a way that you can deal with it. The the bottom line is it doesn't really matter. And I've watched people who had what they considered to be a past life memory come forward. And when they dealt with it, when they applied forgiveness in that arena, in fact, well, let me give you an example. Years ago when I was working in Atlanta, there was an attorney who uh, I knew through a friend, but this fellow was a his family had been attorneys in Atlanta for years, for decades, and he was a pretty highly successful man. And he was extremely intellectual. He was extremely atheist. And his heritage was Jewish. And through this person that we knew mutually, he ended up coming to me to do some private session work. Now, you've got to know that a man who's living at that level, <laughs> intellectual atheist, coming to see Michael Rice has got to be pretty strange. In any event, really nice guy started to work with him, and we did some forgiveness work, and we did a still point session. And as he's breathing, he comes up with, all of a sudden he comes up with, I'm, I'm laying in a casket, I'm laying in a sarcophagus, this is what his mind is serving him. So, well, go with it. It's like, you know, if it seems like a past life memory, go with it and let's see what happens. So he goes through it and he's, I'm, I'm, I'm in a sarcophagus. Everybody that's here thinks I'm dead and they're getting ready to bury me. And my wife is here and she's with another man and they're going to bury me and leave, and she's the only one that I'll be able to communicate with. If I can just communicate with her, she'll know I'm still alive, that I'm here. Don't bury me. And his language was, and, and you know, when she's getting ready to leave, it's like, if she leaves, I'll die. So that was his experience. And then as the experience unfolded, the thing that led him to seek working, seek me out to do some some private work was that he divorced this woman about six months earlier. Again, he was a pretty successful, high-level attorney in the city, very well-known. And his life was totally and completely falling apart. His bank account had been emptied over this period of six months. He would just go into tremors and terror whenever 
or, or whenever he thought about her or if he saw her, he would just totally break down. He just couldn't handle even the thought of her. And so I had him breathe, keep breathing, stay with this. And she leaves in this memory that's coming up, in this scenario that's coming up in his head. Again, it might just be a mind's creative way of serving up something that he can deal with. In any event, she leaves and he dies. Now, here's a guy who's an atheist. And when he dies, he's still talking to me. And he tells me, you know, I just died. So I say to him, well, then, who are you? What's... I don't know, but I am. Several times I asked him the question, and he would just keep coming back with, I don't know, but I am. So he knew he existed beyond his physical form. So we finished the session, and I bid him to do, and he left my house, and, and within about a, a half a mile of the house was a gas station. He needed to stop and get some gas. He stopped to get gas. And he had he shared this with me in his next session. In his life, he had had three different important relationships. One was a high school sweetheart who he hadn't seen since high school. And at this point, he's probably in his late 50s, early 60s. I don't know exactly his age, but something in that range. Maybe a little younger, 45. So he left my house and he stopped to get gas and he pulls up to the gas pumps and filling her car up with gas is the girl he'd had a relationship with in high school that he hadn't seen from since high school. And he had a pleasant, sweet exchange with her and went on. And it was his day. He had taken the day out of the office. It was his day to go and be with his kids. He described his daughter as hating him and lamented that he had not even touched his son since he was an infant. But he was going to pick them up and take them out for dinner. This was his evening to have them. And this was, uh, these were two children that he'd had with a woman that was his first marriage. He divorced, they had divorced, divorced about 10 years earlier. She had custody of the kids and he would visit them. He said in the 10 years they'd been divorced, she had not had a decent word to say to him in 10 years. And when he got to her house to pick up the kids, she waved him in, invited him in. And the first decent words she'd said to him in 10 years, she expressed, hey, everything's really all right, and gave him a warm and loving kiss on the cheek took the kids and off they go. So now he's seen two out of the three women that were important in his life in terms of relationship. He took the kids to the mall, they had dinner, and as they're, I forget whether it was when they were leaving the mall or, or as they got to the mall, the woman who he had divorced or had divorced him actually six months earlier was there. Now previously, he could not think about her, could not speak about her, and certainly couldn't see her without literally, totally and completely emotionally falling apart. He saw her at the mall, was able to say hello, give her a, you know, just a quick hug and say, hey, hope everything's okay and carry on. No deleterious impact whatsoever. 
So that's all within a matter of five hours of doing this session where he experienced himself dying and knowing that if the woman who was his wife, by the way, in his mind, it was a woman who had divorced him six months earlier and his thought was, if she leaves, I'll die. And he literally, the time they divorced, was pretty much in the process of dying. I mean, everything was falling apart. He actually became really engaged in the work uh, I had a study group and would invite different students to present, and he actually came and presented a lesson in a study group that I had. And he also, when he came to do that, and it was just a matter of a couple of months later, he shared with the group, kind of shared the story with them, and that his Whole, his practice was back on track. His bank account had refilled, and his life was just totally smoothed out. Everything was cool. So that's how his mind presented. Again, I'm not saying that it is a past life. It might be a genetic memory. Tell, it might be the mind's creative way of making up. Go ahead, sweetie. And tell about his kids. Oh, yes. Yeah, I forgot about that piece. Yes. When they got back from the... Uh, the dinner in the mall and you drop them off at their mom's place his daughter who previous to this and in our session he had shared that his daughter hated him I believe she was about 15 and she asked if she and her boyfriend friend could come over the next week and cook dinner for him and his son who he said he had not touched since he was an infant he said his son grabbed a hold of him and just hugged him as though he was never going to let him go. That's within six or seven hours of doing a still point session where he touched into what he considered to be a past life memory. When, of course, he didn't believe in past lives, but that's how it came up. And it was just so we don't need to question it. We don't have to figure it. It doesn't matter. Maybe his mind made the whole thing up so that he could deal with this separation and belief that without this woman, he would die and the impact that had on everything in his life. So yes, and many questions come up. I know that I was talking to someone this morning and uh, I, I personally went with, as you say, went, the deeper you go, the more questions there are. At this point, with a number of different arenas that I wish to still integrate into this work and the depth at which they need to be integrated and the expansion of how we're bringing this forward in the world, I could literally use, let's say, something in the range of about 90 hours a day to take in and research and, and question and go to experts of, of all of the things that I'm realizing I don't have a clue about that I want to or need to know. So, yeah, it's and, – and when you think about it, you know, if we look at that Harvard research that we talked about, again, what they showed was that in a time frame where they could measure 10,000 units of electrical activity happening in the brain, the max amount of data that goes into conscious awareness is nine bits. That's all that the mind of man, that's all that perception can do is serve up nine bits of data. It's been estimated in the same time frame that the actuality contains perhaps 20 trillion bits of data. So if we live in an actuality that is 20 trillion bits of data, 
with a mind that can move 10,000 brain cells and perception that can only encompass nine bits of that, then you can certainly imagine that working through a nine-bit mind, if you're going to comprehend a 20 trillion-bit world, and or, you know, you look at what uh, science is now telling us, this latest uh, web telescope is, I mean, the Big Bang is gone. That's now been proven to be another fantasy that perception made up. And we're seeing galaxies and stars that are, you know, the universe is an, an inf- unfathomable expanse, larger than what the unfathomable expanse was we thought it was. And my take is that as beings, we are upgrading our awareness as beings to literally be able to comprehend all of that, work within that, and be the next step in the creation process. You know, if you go back and and, uh, listen to the creation story in Aramaic, and then you hear the creator after creation occurs giving instructions to humans. It says, go forth and multiply and replenish the face of the earth. Most everybody listened to the multiply command. They liked that one, but had no idea what replenish meant. But in Aramaic, what that term meant was the creator was instructing us to bring the creation to completion. It's like you and I are the next step in the creation, and it's up to us to utilize our higher faculties to turn away from carbon-based memory. You know, the the word repent isn't the repent ye sinner for the end is coming. Repent in uh, the pensée in in French is to think, is to rethink. And, and, And that means that rather than being focused in this nine-bit mind, rather than being focused in perception, the mind of man, that literally... Imagine you've got somebody looking, you know, a being looking into its own mind. It's looking into the top of the head, and then there's the whole creation behind them. To repent in that sense, if you take get that visual, would be literally to turn away from what's happening in carbon-based memory, the mind of man, and turn toward like 180 degrees and turn toward what's waiting to come through so that we can be the instrument that brings the creation to the next level, and who knows what that's going to look like. We're going to have to get finished with war and drama and trauma and hatred and racism and vengeance and violence. We're going to have to get rid of that before we're going to start to see, before we can get a mass... Critical mass, as Yeshua said it, when he says a little leavening leavens a whole loaf, he's talking about physics and that that each one who engages in this process we're talking about and finally incarnates into their own physiology the active presence of love because everything that would inhibit the active presence of love in their physiology has been forgiven. When enough people incarnate fully as love in this world, in their forms, then together we create literally a critical mass energy that shifts and changes every mind on the planet. It will create such a bright light that everybody will turn toward it. And and it will be like, I think a good example would be like the sun would warm us and would be embraced because the opening is there when enough people have done the work enough people who are the cutting edge of incarnating as human beings 
rather than functioning out of a picture in the mind of who we thought we were, the ego. When Yeshua says, in order for you to live, you've got to die, in order to incarnate as a human being, in order to actually enter into this world as who you are, as love, you're going to have to stop the belief that you're whatever your power person told you, whatever the culture told you, you know, the crazies. You're going to have to eradicate sin, those energies that are off the mark, and step back into functioning as, truly functioning as a human being, which is nothing other than the active presence of love. So that would be my offering. Hope it fits and makes awesome. sense. Any other thoughts for you, sweetie? Um, two things, and then we do have two callers. Uh, the first one Great. is Erico's site is n-o-o-h-r-a.com, and I'm putting a link it's to that com. in the okay, website. I wasn't sure if it was org or com. Okay. Yeah. Great. And the, the Lamsa Bible was published in 1933, and someone had asked, okay. did anybody... Uh-huh. Someone asked, did anybody use it? It is being used by the Assyrian Church of the East and other Syriac traditions. It's actively yeah, their Bible. No, their, their, the introduction and such is really juicy and excellent, as are all of the commentaries. But the reason I suggest the commentaries, you know, again, when you take the whole text of the Old and New Testament, which he's done both, when you take that whole text and you recognize there should have been approximately ten to 12,000 changes and there were only about sixteen or 1,700, I think you have to read a lot to find one of the, the morsels. And if you get one of the commentaries instead, you'll have, you know, I mean, morsel after morsel, page after page after page in terms of understanding the nuances of the Aramaic. I can hear you talking, Jeannie, but your voice has disappeared. Oh, because I had muted. (laughs) Oh, there you go. That old meat challenge thing. Yeah. So we actually have three callers. But the first one, um, I don't know this person. Uh, It's area code 614. You are on the air. How are you and who are you? And welcome. Hi, thank you. I'm Kathleen. Welcome. I'm in Columbus, Ohio. Hi. Kathleen. Hi. Awesome. Um, to meet you. Yeah. Yes. I have a couple questions for you. Um, I listened to your talk with uh, Suzanne Tucker a couple evenings ago. And oh, right. You, mm-hmm. you, yeah. You mentioned that the person that causes us injury also has the salve. and. Right. Um, I was wondering if you could give an example of that. And um, my second burning question is from yesterday's talk. You spoke about goals, which was really super helpful and shifting for me. And I was wondering if you could share how do we use goals in a healthy way that's aligned with our true self so we don't get in a niche again. (laughs) Right. Okay, let's start with that one because that's that's fresh with what we talked about yesterday. So, so the the idea is to recognize that what we call the mind of man, which would be like our database. You know, you go to your computer, comparable. You type a question into the database, into the computer, and it gives you an answer. So, typing something into the computer would be like setting a goal. And let's say I take the computer and I type. 20 different commands in at one time, if I could do that, theoretically, if I could do that, the computer would become, you know, overloaded, overwhelmed, and perhaps crash. 
in exactly the same way. And the instruction that Yeshua was giving in that case is sufficient for the day are the evils thereof. Again, evil being unripe in that context, being incomplete. So, in other words, only set goals, frame and set goals for what you will be able to accomplish in the next waking hour. If you set more goals than that, you're going to overwhelm and overload your mind the same way as typing 10 different commands into the computer at the same time cause it to crash. The mind kind of crashes. And so we actually have, if you go to our website, whyagain.org, we have a worksheet there called Mind Goal Management. And the Mind Goal Management sheet goes hand in hand with the workshop called Getting the Stress You Need. You know, stress has been given a bad rap in our culture, like there's something wrong with it. But actually, the only behaviors that are ever done are done in response to stress. Stress is absolutely our best friend. However, if we don't know how to manage our minds and we create an overwhelm of stress, you know, I went to the latest mind goal or the latest uh, goal setting workshop and I came out of there and they told me to set my daily, my hourly goals and my daily goals for the week and my weekly goals and then my month, my goal for next month and the next month and the next month and the next and then for the next year and then for the next five years and and I wondered why I came out so overwhelmed with stress because every time you set a goal, you create a stress, which is wonderful. Because a goal is typing a command to the computer that says, gee, I need to write email, open the email program. Computer, now my email program is open and I write my email. When I frame a goal and set that goal, I'm saying to my mind, mind, this is the task that I want you to do now. Give me the best information you've got for how to do this. And if I have you know a whole lifetime of goals locked in there and genetically i have unresolved goals you know if you think about what your generation the the generation pardon me before you and i our parents their parents their parents their parents how many goals do you suppose let's just look at three or four generations our parents set that were never accomplished and left them in perhaps frustration pain rage guilt, who knows, you know, the goal to make sure that, you know, this family works perfectly and it doesn't work perfectly, so now I'm guilty. And then I've got a church that tells me that I'm to blame and I'm guilty because I sin, you know, all of those things. So so it is the uh, the setting of a goal that creates stress, which is wonderful, but if you overload the whole system, like the computer, your mind crashes. So the Mind Goal Management Sheet is a worksheet for doing a morning exercise and an evening exercise around goals and getting into the habit of managing your mind so that it gives you what you want. And the mind is managed through indirection. You'll notice if, let's say, we all know somebody who were really great at quitting smoking. They'd done it a hundred (laughs) times. And they tried to quit smoking by saying to their mind, we are going to quit smoking. But not many people do that because the mind is managed through indirection. And an example of indirection would be, let's say, I imagine, are you in St. Louis? I'm in Columbus, Ohio. Columbus. Oh, okay, right. So I I I grew up in St. Louis. (laughs) 
Okay, I imagine Columbus is probably about as chilly or maybe a little chillier than we are here today. I think it's about 20 or so. So imagine that the house is getting cold because the temperature just dropped 20 degrees, and I yell out, furnace, turn on, it's cold in here. Is the furnace going to turn on? You know, we're almost at the point where we've got the technology where that will happen, but most of us don't have that technology. If I want the house to warm up because it's getting cold, what do I do? I go over and turn up the thermostat. That's managing the furnace through indirection. I can't do it directly. There's a tool with which I have to do it. The mind is the same way. The tool for managing the mind is goals. Goals create stress. Stress is a prompt to the mind to come up with the best information it has to guide you as to how to achieve that goal. And then realize that there are only two ways to get rid of a goal. One is it either needs to be accomplished, or two, it needs to be canceled. In our Getting the Stress You Need workshop, I do a meditation, and we go back and we literally have people going back and asking to be shown what kind of goals they had for mom when they were two or three or four years old that were never achieved. How many times did they call for dad to be there when dad was at work and the goal was never achieved? Well, those goals not having been canceled, are still in the mind of the person at 90. And people say, I don't know why I'm frustrated. Well, here it is. Those accumulated goals load the mind with stress, and that stress is what leads people to function out of hostility and fear. So going back and cleaning up the goals, part of the uh, Mind Goal Management Worksheet, Every night before sleep, I literally, I ask help of what in Aramaic was called Ruka de Kutcher. The Greeks call it the Holy Spirit. It's got nothing to do with the disembodied spirit being. But inside of each of us, what Yeshua identified was was a power that was called Ruka de Kutcher. And Ruka de Kutcher is not a disembodied spirit being again, but rather is a feminine elemental force in us that does two things as he identified it. It undoes the effects of our errors and it teaches us the truth if we know she's there. And so inviting that power to show us and go back and literally every night before you sleep, clean out every goal from any time in your life. Then you get to go to sleep stress-free. The only goal you have to sleep is deep, restful, regenerative sleep where if you're working on something, you ask Ruka, for feedback and guidance. Now, sleep happens and guidance comes. Mm -hmm. And then in the morning, the goals that you framed the night before, you set. And you purposely initiate a stress and then rock on with your day. You get close to the end of the day and there are three things on the list. Well, I'll just leave them there for tomorrow. So now what you just said is, so these three things that I didn't get accomplished today, I'm going to leave those stresses in my mind while I try to sleep. Anybody ever go to sleep and the mind's going, why is it doing that? Because you gave it an assignment and it's just doing what it was told. Cancel the assignment, cancel the goal, forgive, and the mind shuts up. You go to sleep. Um, that is that is so helpful. Oh my gosh, I <laughs> I I'm dumbfounded. That's that is so incredible. Um, 
how does that's that fit in That technology has been around for 2,000 years. Yeah. That comes out of Yeshua's mouth 2,000 years ago in Aramaic. But if you listen to Greek, sufficient for the day are the evils thereof, you go, what the heck does that mean? Yeah. Uh, how does this work with planning, like business planning? I have a planner. If I've got something, like Jeannie, Jeannie, do you want to share your school example? It's a great one. Okay. Um, You know, when I went back to school, I, in my mind, decided that I was going to complete my four-year degree in three and a half years, and I did. Well, we were on the the road full time. Right. (laughs) A lot of times, Michael would be up there doing a workshop, and I'd be in the back writing my papers or taking my quiz or whatever. And, but anyway, um, but when I signed up for school, you know, I signed up for my first class and ordered the books for that first class. There was no need of me even considering, you know, okay, I'm taking Psychology 101. What am I going to do for Psychology 605? You know, that's how many classes away. There's nothing I can do about it right now. So I had in my planner, you know, it was it was a fast-track um, class that was five weeks for each class and one week, one right behind the other. And so I put down, you know, this is the class that I'm going to do this first five weeks. And then I wrote in my planner, I'm still one of those that carries a paper calendar, and I put down, then in five weeks I'm going to sign up for my second class and order the books for it. But there's no need of me doing that until I get to the week before that class. And so it went in my planner so that I would remember to do it. But I only set goals for what I could do in the next waking period. And then there again, each class being five weeks, by the time I reached the fifth week, I had to have a essay of that whole five weeks. Well, I'd start out and I'd say, okay, well, to accomplish that, this week I have to do my rough outline of what I'm going to write about. Then week two, a little bit more polished outline. Week three, my rough draft written up. Then week four, I'll get it, um, you know, have it edited or whatever. And then week five, I'll submit my final paper. But I couldn't worry about my final paper that was going to be week five when I hadn't even done, you know, my ideas or my outline in week one. So you can put things in your planner, this is what I have to do during this week or on this day, but you don't set it as a goal until you get to it. Okay, so it's kind of like a a tentative plan, but you don't attach to it. You you let it go until until the time is right. The difference between a plan and a goal is a goal is a commitment that I'm going to finish this in the next 24 hours. A plan, you know, uh, I mean, Jeannie had a plan to graduate in three and a half years. And so each week she would do whatever it was that she was committed to doing to ultimately achieve the completion of that plan. But the goal to get, to uh, graduate in three and a half years would do nothing but leave a stress that would use resources, relegate it to the planner, and then frame and set your goals on a daily basis so that you live stress-free, have all your resources available, all your vitality available, and aren't, you know, 
peddling under the surface trying to accomplish something that that you can't accomplish in this in this particular waking period and that way you have your multi-generational database called your body mind unit the mind of man available to you for its purpose that is being your servant your footstool and giving you the information that you need for what you choose to accomplish in the world today and for you to stretch okay. sleep and tomorrow and so the plan is like a map a general map and then yes the goals the goals are what you commit to on a daily basis and it sounds like you're saying try not to set a goal unless you're going to do it within the next hour. The next wa- what would be the next waking period. So on the uh, Mind Goal Management Sheet that we have that's on the website, you can download it from whyagain.org. If you download that, there's a morning section and an evening section. So in the morning, or pardon me, in the evening, you cancel the goals from yesterday and all of the rest of your life, anything that you can have come to the surface so you clear that out and then you frame the goals that you're thinking you're going to achieve tomorrow you don't set them because you don't want to go to bed with that stress but you frame them and and you're asking Rooka for feedback on those things you know are they appropriate in the morning you check them off you know do I still like this goal is this really in alignment with my purpose and then I make a commitment Yes, I'm committing to this goal. I'm going to achieve this. Now your mind is clear to give you the best guidance and the best intelligence possible to achieve your goal. Whereas people who who don't know any better end up creating all kinds of stress and all kinds of interference in their minds that slow them down. So it makes one much more efficient at everything. Wow, that is... Really beautiful, yeah. Um, how does intention weave in with goals and plans? Well, that's a great question that fits perfectly with where we're heading with all of this. That's an important piece of the puzzle. And actually it involves a question that Yeshua was asked 2,000 years ago and that he answered and they said to him, you might remember a passage where they said to him, come across very clearly, or at least the answer doesn't come across at all in the Greek, but they say what? <clears throat> they speak about the law in this question. The law, just about every important word in Yeshua's teachings has was turned backward by the Greek. So the word law in our culture today, most people I would think would probably agree that law is the rule of a superior if you think of, quote-unquote, God's laws, or there's a superior somewhere up there in the cloud that says, you better do it this way or else you're in trouble. That's Mm -hmm. a totally Greek idea. Yeshua would not relate to that at all. That's all Greek to me, he would say. Law is simply the way it works. So they ask him, you know, in essence, so I'm a human being, what's what's the first law? What, What do I need to do to function as a human being? We're told in the Greek translations that he said, you've got to love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's just not even relative to what he said, not even close to his Aramaic words. And it turns the word love on its head because the word love represents a state of 
human life. It represents our created essence as well as representing the creator. And, you know, we each came into the world as the active presence of love. And one of the first questions that Jeannie or I will ask in our main workshop when we're traveling, which we're not doing anymore, but in our intensives, is we'll ask the question, have you ever held a newborn child? Have you ever held a newborn? Yes. If you went back to the moment where you held your first newborn and you tapped into the essence of your newborn, what word would you use to describe the essence of that newborn? Just um, pure beingness and peace. Mm Mm-hmm. So this is a question we've asked of tens of tens of thousands of people in all kinds of cultures all over the globe. And everybody agrees. The words they use are always some variation on the theme of love, that the newborn is the presence of love. And then I'll, we'll ask people, so, so tap in now to that presence, that being, and tell me, is that newborn loving you or is that newborn love? It's love. No question. So love is a noun. Love describes a state of being, as you said it, pure beingness. We all come into the world exactly the same. And we have a culture that specializes in beating the awareness out of us that we are love. And then at a certain age, they send us out the door to find somebody to love us. Or find somebody to love. And now, when you realize the mind is designed to accomplish goals, you just gave the mind of that person a fantasy that is not achievable. No one has ever loved you. No one ever will love you. You have never loved anyone. God does not love you. Love isn't a verb. It's not something we do. It's what we are. But if I set a goal to love you and, and, and just look around the world, what is everybody who says, oh, I love them so much and then I fell out of love with them. If you ask them, when was the moment you fell out of love? Oh, it was when they didn't do what I wanted them to do. Oh, you mean they didn't fulfill you? You mean they didn't fulfill your goals? So what you're really telling me is what you call love is approval. As long as you're doing everything I want you to do, I love you. But by God, if you stop doing what I want you to do. And we project that onto the creator. We stopped doing what the creator wanted us to do, so now the creator stopped loving us. And therefore, it's going to put I mean, it's, the whole thing is just a crazy Greek fantasy on its face. Love yeah. is a state of being. It's what we are. And the whole idea of this work is to return to the acting as the presence of love. So how do we do that? They asked Yeshua, how do we how do we do that? That's a great idea. How do we do that? <laughs> he said in Aramaic, when you think of the creator, when you think of neighbor, you must have a condition in your mind called Rachma, active. And if you do that, you will maintain awareness of yourself as love. Not love God, love your neighbor as yourself, as the Greeks would tell us. Rachma is a filter in the frontal lobes of the brain. 
it's interesting that we, for a year, I traveled with the Kabor's manuscript. We were working on getting high-resolution images, and I traveled to several different places. I, I used to sleep with it every night under my bed. It was actually pretty cool to be hanging out with that manuscript and it went back to the 10th century. Uh, but we, there was a community in Southern California that, um, that spoke Aramaic, you know, native Aramaic speakers. And we connected with that community when I was out in California. And uh, and we took the manuscript to them, and, and we one of the things we asked was because we were working on and didn't you know this was a difficult word. What does this rachma mean? And what they said is, we have lost the meaning of that word. We don't know what it means. But what our tradition tells us is that it is the most precious jewel that you could have. So the Aramaic, this particular community, at least, I don't know if that's common across the world of Aramaic-speaking communities, but this community in particular said it was the most precious jewel, but we don't know exactly what it means. And over years of working with this, what we finally came to understand that Rachma, which is a word he used, is what you had to have when you thought of creator and neighbor, and by doing that you would maintain self. Rachma is a filter in the frontal lobes of the brain. Medicine, and I haven't established this, but there's a thing called the angular gyrus that's become associated with love. I suspect that Rachma is the location of the angular gyrus. Again, I haven't been able to prove that one scientifically, but I think that's what it is. And what the researchers are saying is when that's active, that's when love is present. That's when the system lights up. So he said, you must have Rachma when you think of the creator and neighbor. In other words, you've got to have this filter active. It's, it's a twofold thing, Rachma. It's a filter in the frontal lobes of the brain, and it's a gateway which allows human life, created essence love, to enter and be active in the human form. People think that if you've got a human form, you've got a human being. My offering is that's totally, completely false. A human form is not a human being. It's not a human life. There has to be active love there for there to be a human life there. And there's only an active life there if Rachma is active and open, the gateway to which love enters the human form. You know, if you've ever observed, there are some people and you go, is there any humanity in there at all? Because hostility and fear override that. So it's a gateway. And then the second function is it's a filter. And it's a filter over intentions. Frontal lobes of the brain, intentions are stored. Mm. And that filter, when active, allows only intentions that are keyed to love to be available in the mind as raw material for goals. So intentions are the raw material of goals. Dan McDougald, who was my partner in the Kaburis uh, project, and we co-created the course called Laws of Living for the Prisons, which we've adapted now to the general population. Uh, but Dan, and I, I have a picture of him sitting here at the uh, other side of the room, and 
I often, although he left his body many years ago, I often say hello to him and ask his support and guidance. But um, one of one of Dan's favorite sayings, which I've adopted and use often, was that an intention can no more move a muscle than a shadow can carry a stone. Shadow looks like it's got substance, and gee, it should be able to be able to go over there and pick up that rock, right? Possible. Intentions do nothing. I know there are people out there writing books about the power of intentions. An intention is only a a piece of raw material to be utilized by the mind or by the being in selecting what goals are going to be activated in the mind. And what Rachma does is it filters out negative and destructive goals, so, or pardon me, intentions. It filters out negative and destructive intentions so that only intentions keyed to love become available for use by the mind as raw material for goals. So Brahma keeps the frontal lobes of the brain on track, and then there's a corresponding filter in the back of the brain over perception. In Aramaic, that was called kuba. And kuba is a filter over perception that does the same thing as Brahma does over intentions. It allows the mind to only use intent or perceptual memory that is key to love in building your guidance, your perception. So Rachma and Kuba together were called perfect love. And you remember they said perfect love casts out fear. The mind cannot generate, it doesn't matter what they're facing, you could be facing the most tragic, threatening, life-destroying situation the world could ever offer. If Rachma, and you think about the saints and what they were able to do, this makes sense now. If Rachma and Kuba are sad, then love is present in the mind, and the mind cannot create a perception based in hostility or fear. It can only create perceptions based in love. And so it allows us to fully incarnate as human beings when those two filters are active, and they're interdependent connected filters. When you know, it's, I, I like to Think about that old song, love and marriage, love and marriage, go together like a horse mm-hmm. and carriage. You can't have one. Mm-hmm. You can't have none. You can't have one without the other. Well, you can't mm-hmm. have Rachma without Kuba and vice versa. It starts with Rachma. You set that. Kuba falls into place. And this is a practice we suggest people use, inviting and asking Rukha for support and bring these filters into activity because if one fails, it's not going to be long before the other one collapses. And we've been trained, you know, by the world, hostility and fear are kind of like, that's what keeps you safe, right? Well, no, actually, yeah. it's what destroys life. Yeah. Wow. That is so that the is technology so of the mind yeah. that Yeshua had 2,000 years ago, I mean, they talk about, oh, these old folkies in the desert, what did they know? The technology of the mind that he had 2,000 years ago would boggle the mind of any psychiatrist on the planet. <laughs> And, mm. and the beauty of it is, you don't have to believe a word of it. Just test it out. It works. That's all. It just works. You don't have to believe it. You just take it and try it out. Yeah, it's, it's very scientific. It's, 
Oh, yeah, it's, it's absolutely awesome and testable. And I know you start out with a, another question as well, so perhaps tomorrow we can begin with that question because of the, the uh, radio show just Monday. spoke in my ear and said, pardon me, Monday, yes, today's Friday, isn't it? it said that we're complete, so it's going to cut us off any second. Okay, But Thank I you appreciate so the questions and the opportunity to put this information into the, uh, into the uh, filter, so awesome. Thank you. All right, everybody. Well, thank you for joining us. Have the best year yet of your eternal life. It's an awesome gift to give the world and blessings. Take care. Bye-bye. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.